0: Welcome, yoga friends. I'm Brenda C. Epley of Green Tree Yoga of PA, and this is the Yoga Discovery Podcast. If you've been a listener of previous podcasts, you probably have noted that I'm deviating from my normal podcast length. Today's focus upon the roots at the intersection of yoga and Buddhism required a, a longer episode that I hope has some surprising twists and turns for you. If you're a returning listener of my podcast, welcome back. You might notice that my voice is a bit rough around the edges as a result of recent and extended laryngitis. Not to worry, all is well, but I don't want to delay the release of any more podcasts. The history of yoga is vast, dating to approximately 5,000 years ago. As a yoga teacher, I believe it's important to understand why we do certain things as part of our yoga practice. For example, you have no doubt encountered the words karma, om, and mantras either in class or in some other context. The terminology that is associated with Buddhism and yoga is extensive, and their story of origin is fascinating. Did you know that they arise out of the same historical foundation and in many ways are considered sister traditions? Both Buddhism and yoga have their own texts, schools of philosophy, lineages, and to some degree, languages. Both originated in what is present-day India. They share similar values. They both recognize suffering as the greatest obstacle to our peace and fulfillment and they both provide a path that will bring an end to suffering. And neither is mutually exclusive. Both Buddhism and yoga firmly assert that their philosophical principles are inclusive of all humanity. Together, they are often referred to as sisters. I think we can all agree that ending suffering and finding peace and fulfillment is universally appealing. You may have discovered by now the physical benefits of practicing yoga. The vast majority of asanas, or postures, are relatively new in the historical timeline. Meditation and mindfulness, however, extend much later into the past to the very roots of Buddhism and yoga. If certain practices have lasted for thousands of years, there must be something innately valuable— or these practices would have disappeared as cultures shifted geographically and evolved philosophically through the centuries. There is a great deal of overlap between Buddhism and yoga. They are both focused on understanding the nature of reality, and by taking a deeper dive into the history of Buddhism and yoga, you'll gain a clearer perspective, appreciation, and understanding of your practice as a whole. As I mentioned moments in history, keep in mind that I am cherry picking points that are relevant to this podcast. I confess that in some ways I found it difficult to decide where to place the focus. So I tried to hear your voice, the students of yoga, in my head as you asked questions that led to placing you on the path to a more meaningful understanding of yoga. When we begin to discuss Buddhism, We have to be aware of our own lens, meaning the lens or perspective that we are looking through to arrive at concepts or definitions. When we receive information regarding anything, we tend to to process the information through our own personal filter. And this is neither good nor bad, but it is important that you are aware of your filter so that prejudices don't arise and impact how you interpret information. In terms of Buddhism, there are various schools, and within these schools, perceptions and definitions often differ. If we try to place the definitions of Buddhism or yoga into tidy little boxes, we will most certainly lose the core teachings of each. For today's podcast, I'll focus upon a few of the commonalities and broad strokes of Buddhism that overlap with yoga. If you're looking to trace one common thread of yoga that continues from the very ancient roots of yoga to yoga in the modern period, and can be found in all traditions and philosophies that include yoga as a practice or goal, that thread is a motivational desire to become more self-aware. A common question that I often hear, and certainly have asked, is whether or not Buddhism is a religion or a philosophy. And that answer boils down to how you define religion. What is certain is that depending upon your perspective and belief system, Buddhism can be a religion, it can be a philosophy, it can be the way that you live your life. If you've listened to my Condensed Origins of Yoga podcast, you know that yoga arises out of the Vedic period in what is present-day northern India between 1500 to 200 before the Common Era. That's abbreviated to BCE. (laughs) What, what, what? Wait a minute, you don't remember the tidbits of the historical timeline during this period? Ah, no worries. Before I offer a quick rundown of the highlights of the origins of yoga, it is critical that you understand that scholarship regarding the history of yoga is rapidly changing as new manuscripts are discovered and interpreted. And I mean this quite literally. Yoga studies is an emerging and exciting field that has opened very recently. The uh, five-year period of the Hatha Yoga Project recently wrapped up that brought together top PhDs from around the world to conduct research using philology and ethnography. I encourage you to conduct a Google search for the Hatha Yoga Project to learn more about what those scholars unraveled. The word Veda means knowledge. And is so named because of the Vedic religion and culture that arose out of India in approximately, as I stated earlier, 1500 BCE and lasted until approximately 200 BCE. It is during this time when the Bronze Age was winding down and the Iron Age was beginning. Remember, there aren't hard start and stop dates for bookending these historical periods. When we are referencing the Vedas in yoga, we are usually referring to just four texts that are the foundational texts of Hinduism. Did you know that people who lived during this ancient period did not call themselves Hindus? I love learning about the etymology of words. The word Hindu was a name that was assigned by the Greeks and the Persians to identify those populations who lived close to the Indus River. The word Hinduism was first used in the 18th century as a result of colonization, and was used to describe the Hindu people. Remember when I asked you to be aware of the lens that you look through when learning about other cultures? This is a perfect example. Whenever Hinduism is used in relation to anything that arose out of ancient India, remind yourself that originally, the people in this region did not use the word Hinduism to self-identify. Today, Hinduism is the dominant religion of people who live in India and Nepal. Back to the Vedas, those four texts that form the foundation of Hinduism. Word introduction alert, drishi. A drishi is a great seer or sage who has divine knowledge about the mysteries of life and death that was bestowed on them by way of the gods. The knowledge of the Vedas was given to seven rishis, through divine intervention and intense mental absorption in the form of meditation that allowed the rishis to witness the creation of the universe. The seven rishis describe the creation of the material reality of our universe as a pulsation. The knowledge found within this pulsation of sounds was converted into verbal utterances by the rishis into, are you ready for it? from which Sanskrit was born. The collection of these sounds were mantras that were compiled and formed into the Vedas. When you are repeating mantras as part of your practice, remind yourself that mantras are the sacred words in Sanskrit that trace their lineages to the Vedas, and the language of Sanskrit is considered of divine origin. The cosmic view during the Vedic period held that Brahman is the singular and absolute source of everything. The goal for everyone is to have a direct relationship with Brahman, and to know yourself, you must first know Brahman. Brahman is not a god. Ultimately, Brahman and the self are the same. Heavy, <laughs> right? Brahman is abstract in nature and not definable. Brahman is the sound of Om. What's important to know is that followers of the Vedic religion believed that the ultimate goal of the individual self was to become fully absorbed in Brahman, and this requires immense self-knowledge and self-awareness. And how does the self do this? Maybe you guessed it, through yoga. A question may be forming in your mind. If Brahman is not a god, then why are there so many deities associated with Hinduism? Great question. I'll have to explain this a bit further in a future podcast. You may imagine that it's somewhat complicated. For this podcast, we only need to concern ourselves with Brahman. The content of the Vedas was an oral tradition committed to memory that was maintained by priests known as Brahmins. See the relationship? The complexity of maintaining the accuracy of Vedic content is an undertaking that deserves emphasis for its sheer scope of effort. To give you some notion of the difficulty of this task, Imagine the skill that was necessary to memorize the first of the four Vedas, the Rig Veda. By comparison, the full text of Shakespeare's Hamlet contains 4,042 lines. The Rig Veda is approximately 10,600 verses in length. Memorizing these verses word for word and without deviation was required of the Brahmanical priests. The content of the Vedas was passed from one Brahmin to the next over the course of many centuries. The belief was that the Brahmins were direct descendants of the seven original rishis, those rishis who received the knowledge of the Vedas from the gods. You may or may not be aware of the caste system in present-day India that is highly controversial. It's a product of the caste system as defined in the Vedas. Society was divided into four castes. The highest was the Brahmins, who were the priests that performed various rituals and controlled all knowledge found in the Vedas. The second group was the Kshatriya, who were the warriors and kings. Next was the Vaishyas, who were the merchants and landowners. The fourth group was the Sudras, who were commoners and artists and servants. A separate group was the Untouchables, who were those people that were considered impure. They were the social outcasts, and examples of their jobs included dealing with sewage or the disposal of dead animals and serving as executioners. Think of the nasty tasks that no one else wanted to do. Whatever class you were born into is where you stayed for your lifetime. We will come back to the Brahmins and the caste system in a moment as they greatly impact the rise of Buddhism. Let's return to yoga in the Vedas. The word yuj, or yoga, is first seen in the earliest Veda, the Rig Veda, in approximately 1500 to 1000 BCE, and was used to describe yoking or joining together that related to joining together a warrior with his chariot. For a visual reference, think of the yokes that are worn around the necks of cattle and ox to pull wagons. Over time and still within the Vedic period, Yuge was more refined and became associated with yoking the mind in such a way to transport an individual to the heavens. I'm a visual learner, and maybe you are too. Picture this, a chariot. The actual chariot represented the body. The passenger in the chariot represented the self or Atman. The charioteer, or the one driving the chariot, represented the intellect or booty and the reins that were attached to the horses represented the mind or manas. The five horses that pulled the chariot represented the five senses. The earliest definition of yoga is within the Vedas found within the Kata Upanishad and states, When the five senses together with a mind stand still, that, they say, is the highest state. That, they consider yoga, the firm restraining of the senses. Then one becomes undistracted, for yoga is the coming into as well as going out of being. This reigning in of the mind was the goal of yoga that ultimately led to liberation or moksha. Modern yoga tends more often to emphasize yoga as a practice of the asanas or postures and forms of breath control, meditation, etc. But An emphasis on practice is really late in our yogic timeline. Prior to the modern period and since the time of the Vedas, yoga's focus was closely aligned to a goal that was spiritual and metaphysical. Flash forward to the 5th and 6th century BCE when we see the evolution of the teachings of yoga in the Vedas referring to the yoking or joining together of the mind, breath, and senses. Rituals in any religion are performed to control the mythology of the religion. Some of you may define a myth as a made-up story that isn't true. Time to check your lens. The belief system at the core of religions is the mythology of the religion. If you identify with a specific religion, your religion has a mythology that is based upon a shared set of beliefs that arise out of an origin story. Rituals are actions that are often ceremonial in nature that control or celebrate the myth. For example, many religions have rituals that are associated with birth or marriage or death. By performing a ritual, the hope is to control or produce an outcome. Understanding the cosmology of the religious underpinnings of the Vedic period will help you to make sense of those aspects of Buddhism and yoga that are shared. The mythology of the later Vedas maintained that the nature of the universe is cyclical and that all living beings are continually moving through a cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, which is known as samsara. The endless cycle of rebirth is a result of karma. Now, karma is a complex term that is often a new concept for those who practice an Abrahamic religion. Karma is often misunderstood. I'll try to break it down. Karma means action and relates to the cause and effect of the universe. No one is manipulating karma. There isn't a creator god who is keeping any sort of tally of your actions and checking them off into a good or bad category. Karma just is. The intention behind your actions is extremely important. Ideally, your actions should arise out of compassion and understanding. And you have free will. Your deeds in your current life dictate what happens to you after you die. If you collect karma that is helpful in nature, you are reborn into a better life. If your karma is harmful in nature, your next life will reflect the negative karma that you accumulated. Ultimately, a person wants to end the cycle of samsara, that is the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, and reach a state of moksha, or liberation, Doing so brings you to an end of the karmic cycle, and based upon your deeds in your current lifetime, karma will dictate whether or not a person will be reborn into a higher or a lower caste. For example, if your deeds, thoughts, and actions in the present lifetime are filled with greed and harm, your karma will land you into a lower caste in your next lifetime. How to end being reborn, you might ask? The only way to end the suffering uh, that comes about with the cycle of samsara is to overcome ignorance, which is the root cause of that suffering, and to build up enough karma to achieve moksha. So you're asking, what's the problem with samsara, and why wouldn't I want to stay a human for as long as possible? (laughs) Great question. Existence in the material realm, think real world that we live in, is tied to dukkha, or suffering. You may think of dukkha in terms of unhappiness or any unpleasant thoughts or situations. Our frustration, sadness, and disappointments and loss are all tied to dukkha. Bringing an end to the cycle of rebirth will liberate the self from dukkha. Your suffering will end. Later Vedic yoga practices were ritualistic in nature as a way to control the outcome of karma and hopefully resulted in ending the samsara cycle of rebirth. Ultimately, by reaching a state of moksha, we are fully absorbed into the pure consciousness of the universe where we find eternal peace. Yoga in the later Vedic period was a a mental state of spiritual insight considered to be transcendent and linked the human world with the divine. The rituals at this time that were enacted to reach a state of moksha included breath control or pranayama, the chanting of mantras, meditation known as dhyana, and tapas. And the rituals were performed by the Brahmanical priests that I had mentioned earlier. Tapas here does not refer to those lovely small plates that you may enjoy with a group of friends. I love eating tapas, and I love getting the sampling of numerous dishes which is what I just realized that I want to have for dinner tonight. Oh, I digress. (laughs) When we refer to tapas in the Vedas, we are referencing heat and the austerities, meaning self-discipline, that was undertaken to end samsara and reach a state of liberation. The extreme and self-disciplined practice of tapas, it was believed, led to purification. The purpose of practicing tapas is to ignite an internal heat that will lead to deep spiritual insight. Tapas requires tremendous self-discipline and focus and is still found in many modern yoga practices. Examples of tapas that you can still see in India today include holding an arm lifted straight up overhead for 20 years or more. Can you imagine the discipline that is required for those extreme forms of tapas? If you are familiar with the eight limbs of yoga, tapas is a niyama. The niyamas are the second limb of yoga and refer to observances, or in simplistic terms, things that we should do to lead a fulfilling life. For modern yogis, you may find the idea of standing on one leg for 10 years to be too big of an ask. No worries. Tapas can be disciplining ourselves to sustain a regular yoga practice. The rituals and sacrifices that were performed by the Brahmins were to appease and sustain the natural order of the cosmos. So again we find ourselves in approximately the 5th to 6th century BCE. As time passed and we arrived in this period, commerce and extended trade routes had begun to broaden and expand, thereby connecting cultures to a much greater degree. To give a reference point to this period in time, We see the rise of Greek philosophy and the construction of some of the enormous ancient Greek theaters that still survive today, and the writing of what is considered to be some of the greatest plays ever written. Confucianism is flourishing in East Asia. The Babylonians sack Jerusalem and destroy Solomon's temple. The goddess Isis is worshipped in Egypt, and the great pyramids of Giza, well, They've been in existence for nearly 2,000 years. The strength of the Persian Empire was nearing its height in terms of the breadth of the area that it ruled. Trade routes naturally result in an exchange of ideas through cross-cultural conversations. And whenever ideas are shared, the result is that people often begin to question their own systems of belief. Not only are technology and new inventions shared, Philosophical and religious ideas are also introduced and debated. But we need to continue to keep our microscope on the region of India, which I want to point out as a sidebar, is patriarchal. Yes, men controlled much of what was happening throughout this podcast's timeline. This exchange of ideas led to questions about the power and control of the Brahmanical priests who, if you recall, controlled access to Vedic knowledge and rituals. Brahmanical tradition held the right to power and knowledge that was prescriptive and largely inaccessible to other members of the caste social order. Remember, too, that rituals were performed in Sanskrit, which was a language that was inaccessible to many members of the other castes of society. And rituals were usually performed for men by men. Maybe you could see this coming. The rituals often tipped the benefits of the ritual in favor of the Brahmins. And what usually happens in history when individuals begin contesting the power that is held by individuals and groups? Searching for religious and philosophical answers and fueled by dissatisfaction with Brahmanical rigidity Non-orthodox monks rejected the Brahmins' control of knowledge. And these renunciates challenged the hierarchy of the Brahmins and questioned if the Brahmins should be in control of and given access to Vedic knowledge. And they wanted access to rituals that would end the cycle of birth and death. Sounds fair, right? These renunciates, these ascetics, chose a path that was outside of society. In an effort to detach from everything, they freed themselves of material possessions. Ultimately, they wanted to eliminate suffering and expand their understanding of existence and reality, and believed this could be done through focused consciousness. By means of mental practice, known as yoga, and often extreme tapas, these wandering ascetics searched for a release from the endless cycle of birth and rebirth, most importantly, they were not ruled or controlled by the Brahmins. So they went rogue. They were the counterculture movement of their time period. These wandering ascetics who were in search of answers regarding reality opened the doorway for new religious sects and communities to arise and develop. Sidebar, ascetics are still seen in modern day India. It is during this time when non-Orthodox groups began questioning belief systems and rituals that the man who was to become the Buddha was born. To clarify before we continue, Buddha is the term that is used for someone who is enlightened. That's what the word Buddha means, awakened or enlightened. The Buddha is not a god. There have been many Buddhas. In Buddhism, the universe exists, is destroyed, and then is reborn. When we say the Buddha, we are referring to the historical Buddha of our age. Each time the universe is reborn, a new Buddha comes into being, and each Buddha teaches the same thing because the teachings of Buddha do not change. Let's turn our attention to approximately 550 BCE in northern India that gave rise to the origin story of the Buddha's path, our Buddha's path, to enlightenment. The oldest biographical text about the man who became the Buddha was written several hundred years after his birth. It is fascinating in the construct, as the reader of the text sees a very human man making very human mistakes as he asks very human questions on his path to awakening. As I tell you the story of the man who became Buddha, keep in mind that we don't have any historical documents that were written by any of his contemporaries that describe the early years of the Buddha. That's an important perspective to maintain. Certainly, if you do a Google search, you will find variations in the narrative. But my intent is to share with you the common and most well-known account of the Buddha's life. But variations do exist, and naturally, scholars debate historical details. While the origin story of the Buddha is interesting on its own accord, it is the teachings of the Buddha that are the foundation of Buddhism. And, to muddy the origin story just a bit more, the Buddha's teachings were oral. He didn't write down his philosophical ideas. Remember, the oral tradition is very strong in this period. If something needs to be written, it was usually applied to dried banana leaves. And the climate in India is not conducive to written texts. Between insects, such as ants, and the humidity, ancient texts rarely survived. What we know about the Buddha's early teachings is because his disciples memorized his words perfectly and passed the info on to other monks and followers. And they did the same. Eventually, a few hundred years after the Buddha's death, his teachings were written on manuscripts. Is it possible that edits occurred? Of course. <laughs> but let's not stray, because that is a debate for another day. On to our story. At birth, again at approximately 550 BCE, the man who was to become the Buddha was born. He was named Siddhartha Gautama, which means one who achieves his goal, and he was raised in a very privileged household as a prince into the Kshatriya, remember the warrior caste, in what is modern-day southern Nepal. If you recall, the Kshatriya caste is just below the caste of the Brahmanical priests. When he was very young, A Brahmin priest who was an astrologer visited the palace where Siddhartha lived and predicted that the young boy would either become a great ruler like Siddhartha's father, who was a chieftain, or a spiritual leader. And these, of course, are two very, very different paths. Wanting to ensure that Siddhartha grew into the role of a ruler who followed in his footsteps, Siddhartha's father shielded him from anything unpleasant, going so far as to confine him to the palace so that Siddhartha wouldn't see the pain and suffering outside the palace walls. Siddhartha's life in the palace was one of luxury and ease, somewhat hedonistic in nature. The world beyond the palace was largely reflective of an oppressive social, political, and spiritual order, but it is these very conditions that motivated Siddhartha to look beyond his confines to better understand human suffering. As a young adult who was no doubt motivated by curiosity, Siddhartha enlisted the help of a servant to sneak out of the palace. And when he did so, Siddhartha, for the first time in his life, saw four things that came to be known as the Four Sights. He saw sickness and death. He saw old age. He saw death. And he saw a joyful ascetic. Remember, the ascetics in this period rejected certain Brahmanical teachings. Siddhartha was inspired by seeing this man, this ascetic, whom he learned was joyfully trying to find a way out of suffering. These early ascetics, usually a man and rarely a woman, led lives that were highly restricted through celibacy and begging for alms, a a severe restriction of food intake, often employing self-mortification, And all of this was just part of their quest on the spiritual path. These four sights made a very deep and lasting impression upon Siddhartha, the man who became acutely aware of his very shielded and privileged life that had protected him from seeing the suffering of the world. To Siddhartha, the palace walls that kept him inside represented ignorance. Ultimately, he too wanted to bring an end to samsara, the ongoing cycle of birth, to death, to rebirth." After returning to the palace and in what you might label as an existential crisis, Siddhartha decided to leave his home and his family, which at the time included a wife and a child. His focus shifted from external pursuits to an internal introspection, if you will, that required him to cast off his former life. He set out on a quest to contemplate the meaning of reality and solve the problem of suffering by finding a way to end samsara, remember the cycle of rebirth. So rejecting the authority of the Brahmins, Siddhartha joined uh, the movement of wandering ascetics who again did not agree with the Ramanical control of Vedic knowledge. These renouncers became wandering ascetics who embraced celibacy and extreme self-discipline in their quest to examine and redefine Vedic concepts. And Siddhartha gave up his life of comfort and protection to join these ascetics for six years to gain new perspectives that would hopefully help him to define reality and existence framed within a goal of bringing an end to the suffering that he saw at every turn. On his journey, Siddhartha encountered many gurus, or teachers, who were also seeking answers to the same questions. There most certainly was a cross-pollination of ideas that Siddhartha encountered, a questioning and dialogue of what defined reality. He learned, for example, how to meditate, but that alone did not by itself bring an end to suffering. Over time, Siddhartha was joined by five companions, close friends who examined uh, and experimented with him various spiritual practices that included practicing tapas. They agreed to each sustain themselves on one grain of rice per day, essentially starving themselves. This extreme form of deprivation was commonly believed to bring spiritual clarity to the practitioner. By disciplining the body, the mind could be controlled. Siddhartha soon discovered that eating one grain of rice for lengthy periods of time did not bring an end to suffering. Siddhartha, severely emaciated, encountered a woman named Sujata who lived in the area. One day, she offered him a bowl of milk rice, which he ate. Naturally, this gave him strength, and so Siddhartha sat beneath a bodhi tree to contemplate existence. He stayed under the bodhi tree and meditating, vowing never to leave until he had the answers that he was seeking about reality and the state of suffering he realized that the two extremes of the hedonistic lifestyle in the palace and the austerities such as food deprivation over longer periods were too extreme. He believed a balance was needed between such extremes, a middle way. At one point, he reached down to touch the earth in a symbolic action of seeing the earth as bearing witness. And that was his moment of awakening. And when he became the Buddha, and realized that we must confront suffering to bring an end to it. Tradition suggests that the Buddha spent seven weeks under or close to the Bodhi tree before walking to a nearby deer park near the city of Varanasi to find his five companions. Initially, they doubted what the Buddha shared about his awakening. They weren't happy that he ate the milk rice since they had a pact to eat only one grain of rice each day but they couldn't ignore his transformation. And so they listened to the Buddha as he gave his first teaching known as the Dharma, and this first teaching came to be called the first turning of the wheel. It is there in the deer park where the Buddha set the wheel of Dharma in motion. The Buddha spent the remainder of his life teaching his followers how to bring an end to suffering. And now that you have a better understanding of the religious and social climate of India that gave rise to Buddhism, let's take a generalized look at the intersection of yoga and Buddhism that I mentioned at the start of the podcast. Think of this as a a teaser to encourage you to undertake your own research about yoga's intersection with Buddhism. The first teachings of the Buddha set the first turning of the wheel in motion and contain the foundation of Buddhism. At some point, you've most likely seen an image of the Dharma wheel or Dharma chakra that is symbolic as the image of Buddhism. In Buddhism, Dharma translates to cosmic law or truth and in Buddhism, the wheel represents knowledge and insight. It is believed Siddhartha's enlightenment set the wheel in motion and the wheel represents a worldview that is cyclical and not linear. The spinning circle never ceases and has no beginning or end." The early teachings of the Buddha were in the language of Pali, which is the vernacular or common tongue of the people. Remember, Sanskrit was considered to be of divine origin and reserved primarily for the Ramanical priests. The Buddha believed that everyone, including women and all castes of society, should have access to his teachings. Pali is a language that is very similar to Sanskrit. For example, Nirvana in Sanskrit, and Nirvana is Pali. The Pali canon is where we find the earliest teachings of the Buddha. Because the Yoga Discovery podcast is geared towards yoga students, I'll use the Sanskrit equivalent of the Pali words. The first turning is introspective in nature. By design, it spotlights our deep and habitual patterns that lead to suffering while emphasizing compassion. As mentioned a few moments ago, the teachings of Buddhism are referred to as the Dharma. Dharma takes on a slightly different meaning in yoga texts such as the Bhagavad Gita. If you listen to my Gita podcast, you'll find a clearer understanding of Dharma in yoga. The core teachings of the first turning were very inclusive in nature. He believed that education should be available to everyone and that anyone could become a monk, even women. You may have heard of the Four Noble Truths that are the cornerstone of the first turning. The path of the Four Noble Truths is very much like an approach a physician might take to treat a disease or dis-ease. The First Noble Truth is a recognition that life is dukkha or suffering. In this First Noble Truth, the Buddha identified the disease which is suffering. The Second Noble Truth is that desires and cravings are the root cause of suffering. These are the symptoms of the disease. The third noble truth states that suffering can end. In other words, there is a possibility of a cure. And the fourth noble truth provides the prescription or medicine to bring about the cure of suffering. This prescription is the eightfold path in which the Buddha provides the instructions to end suffering so that by following a middle way, extremism in one direction or another is avoided. I'll discuss the Eightfold Path in a minute, because when I do, you will most certainly begin to see parallels with yoga. And of note, the Buddha taught that anyone can become a Buddha. With me so far? The Four Noble Truths are simplistic in nature and are easily relatable to everyone, no matter where you land, socially or economically. But of course, the Buddha goes into even greater detail regarding how to rid ourselves of disease through the core teachings of the three marks of existence. These three marks of existence are very important. The first mark of existence is the recognition of impermanence and its application to everything in the universe. The Buddha saw with perfect clarity that nothing is lasting, that we are impermanent, in process, and constantly changing. Everything is in the process of becoming something else. And according to dependent origination, a core teaching of Buddhism, everything is dependent upon something else and arises out of previous conditions. Nothing exists independently. All things arise out of causation. Our failure to accept that everything is impermanent is a form of clinging that leads to suffering, and this clinging is a direct product of ignorance or avidya. Avidya is our relationship to our own lack of awareness. In Buddhist art, avidya is often depicted as a blind man. In Buddhism, avidya is in reference to our ignorance of the Four Noble Truths and our own experience of ignorance in the world. It is this ignorance that gets in the way of our understanding reality. The very definition of avidya speaks to a lack of interest in becoming self-aware. And as you know, the very nature of personal growth is found in self-awareness and analysis. But we often cling to our perceptions, our, our feelings, our mental reactions, our sensory experiences. The Buddha recognized that we have the ability to develop skills that will interrupt habitual patterns of behavior. And this is a primary example of the Buddha drawing yogic wisdom from the writings of the Vedas, and the Indian epics, such as the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita. So, how do we eliminate avidya? Yoga and Buddhism agree. Ignorance, avidya, is overcome through knowledge and wisdom. And now you're saying, Brenda, wait a minute, pause for a moment. What is this knowledge that will help me to eliminate ignorance? Well, sit tight, we'll get there. The second of Buddhism's three marks of existence is what I've already mentioned, suffering or dukkha. The Buddha taught suffering as the first noble truth because he recognized that everyone suffers. Suffering arises out of our desires and attachments and our failure to see the impermanence of everything. Our actions either produce or eliminate suffering, and our actions are both the cause And elimination of suffering ding ding again yoga as a goal seeks to end suffering too and there is the word action once again you might remember that earlier i had stated that the word karma is translated as actions karma is very important in the philosophy of yoga buddhism also agrees that we are subject to the natural laws of karma and that we have free will Furthermore, the process is not overseen by a divine being who is controlling outcomes, and the intentions behind our actions are of utmost importance. Buddhism, like yoga, emphasizes that our actions should arise out of understanding and compassion. In essence, karma shapes us into who and what we are. In Buddhism, even the gods are subject to the laws of karma and the cycle of rebirth. I should clarify here that Buddhism doesn't have gods and goddesses who are ruling the world. In Buddhism, there is a single teacher who is Lord Buddha. The gods and goddesses of Buddhism serve more as guides, and the deities of Buddhism are subject to the laws of karma as they cycle through the various realms of existence. In Vedantic philosophy, meaning the totality of the philosophy of the Vedas, A creator god does exist who is different from Brahman that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. You will recall that in the yoga of the Vedas, when we end the cycle of rebirth, we merge with Brahman or pure consciousness. However, without souls, sins, rewards, or punishments, Buddhists are simply reborn into the summation of their karma. The third and final mark of existence in Buddhism is where we see laid out a strong division or separation of the philosophical underpinnings of yoga and Buddhism. The third mark of existence is the elimination of the self, or Atman. In the teachings of the Vedas, the internal self remains intact as it moves through samsara, through the cycle of rebirth. The Buddha saw the self as proof of permanence, which directly opposes the core Buddhist teaching of impermanence. The Buddha taught that the need to define who we are leads to the attachment that arises out of ignorance and our desire to see ourselves as everlasting, eternal beings. When students first learn about this non-self idea, meaning that the self doesn't exist, sometimes it just doesn't sit very well. Maybe when I tell you that the self doesn't really exist and is largely an invention of the mind, you get that kind of oogie, uncomfortable feeling. Buddhism would define those feelings that are arising as a form of attachment to the self. And again, it is the form of clinging in Buddhism that leads to suffering. According to Buddhism, the self is an impression that is something we invent in our minds. It is largely driven by personal desires that are selfish in nature. The Buddha taught that we waste entirely too much time trying to figure out whether or not the self exists when it is better to devote our energies to eliminating suffering. And check this out, the idea of a non-self speaks to our interconnectedness to one another. We are less selfish when we are aware that our actions impact everyone else and that our actions can and should be led with compassion. And then the I doesn't mean as much. In contrast, the foundational teachings of yoga believe that there is a self, the Atman, and that the self is our true nature. The self transcends time and space. It is eternal and unchanging as we cycle through rebirth. Time to look at the eightfold path that I mentioned earlier. As a yoga student, you may be familiar with the eight limbs of yoga, or ashtanga, meaning four-limbed. In teacher training programs, the eight limbs are usually emphasized as a foundational text for much of what we do as part of our yoga practice. The eight limbs of yoga are most commonly credited to a man named Patanjali, who wrote an incredibly important text named the Yoga Sutras. I've mentioned the text in an earlier podcast, and I'll be devoting a podcast to the Yoga Sutras in the not-too-distant future. And this is where scholarly debate and research gets very interesting in terms of the intersections of yoga and Buddhism. The dating of the Yoga Sutras has been difficult for scholars to agree upon. For quite a number of years, the writing of the text was thought to have occurred before the Common Era which would place the writing closer to the lifetime of the Buddha. Dr. Philip Moss, considered to be one of the great scholars of yogic philosophy, has recently made discoveries that place Patanjali's writing of the Yoga Sutras to be closer to the fifth century of the Common Era. Why is this important? Look at the timeline. The Buddha lived approximately 900 years prior to Patanjali. At the beginning of the podcast, I stated my belief that our practice of yoga deepens when we have a working understanding of the roots of why we do what we do as yogis. As concepts and philosophical belief systems evolve through time, I find it helpful to learn about the nuances of the changes. This often leads me to a greater clarity of these concepts. Patanjali, some scholars argue, was perhaps a Buddhist monk, and with an expansive passage of time between Buddha and Patanjali, there can be no doubt that Buddhism figured heavily into the writing of the Yoga Sutras, and Patanjali was well versed in his understanding of Vedantic religion and philosophy. When you read the Yoga Sutras, there is a tremendous overlap of principles and ideas. Let's do a very general comparison of the Eightfold Path with the Eight Limbs of Yoga. Just a reminder that the Eightfold Path is the Buddhist prescription for the means to navigate and end suffering. It is right view, right intention, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration or samadhi. The first limb of Ashtanga is the Yamas, and these are the ethical standards that we are to live by. This is where we find non-harming and truthfulness and non-stealing. The second limb comprises the niyamas and these focus upon self-discipline. The third limb is asana, which is associated with the physical practice of yoga. The fourth limb is pranayama or breath restraint. The fifth limb is pratyahara, meaning sense withdrawal. The sixth limb is dharana or concentration. The seventh limb is dhyana, or meditation, and the final limb is samadhi, which is the final step before reaching moksha. If in your mind you are visualizing a chart with two columns, with one column for the Buddhist eightfold path and one for the yogic ashtanga, eight limbs of yoga, you will start to see clear overlays. Each shares the goal of bringing an end to suffering while on a path to liberation. Both begin by identifying the morals and ethics that we should live by, both prepare the body for meditation, and both end at liberation. A deep and truthful understanding of who and what we are is fundamental to Buddhism and yoga. Ahimsa, or non-harm and compassion in thoughts, words, or actions, is a core principle that they share. They cultivate and practice a deep state of concentration that overcomes mental and emotional obstacles, And the path to each leads to a state of bliss and enlightenment. Rules and observances, postures, breath control, withdrawal of the senses, focused concentration, samadhi, and an emphasis on self-awareness are commonalities. You see the parallels, right? And to be clear, this is only one example of the philosophical overlays of Vedantic yoga and early Buddhism. I remember that when I first learned that the Yoga Sutras were written nearly nine centuries after the Buddha was teaching, well, I reframed some of my interpretations of the Yoga Sutras. I'm certainly not going to lay claim in this podcast to which philosophy owns what terminology. We will leave that up to the top scholars who are conducting this research as I record this podcast. My newly formed interpretations are sort of altered lens. Sometimes we accept knowledge with blind faith. Yoga teachers, for example, having no understanding of the circumstances and philosophies that gave rise to Patanjali's writing of the so- Yoga Sutras may very likely miss the depth of the teachings. Armed with a knowledge of Buddhism's Eightfold Path, our understanding of the eight limbs of yoga is much more informed, and we gain a clearer idea as to what motivated Patanjali in his creation of the Yoga Sutras. Mindfulness and meditation are terms that we commonly hear. They've become buzzwords in medical publications and social media ads and psychology and are prevalent in yoga studios. Sometimes it seems as if the world is waking up to emphasizing the importance of mindfulness and meditation. Meditation and mindfulness are not modern concepts. Their roots can be traced to early forms of yoga that are pre-Buddhist, although Buddhism shines a light on the importance of mindfulness. One only has to look at the second of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras for the often quoted definition of yoga. Yoga's Yoga is the stilling of the cessations of the mind. Essentially, yoga is bringing an end to the constant chatter of our monkey brain that leaps from one thought to the next. Here is where dabbling in definitions can get a bit sticky. In many ways, meditation and mindfulness share goals. Both are found in yoga and Buddhism, and of course, as I hope you are learning, the approach to each has varied throughout the historical timeline as philosophies are re-examined and shift. What's important here to note is that both mindfulness and meditation are foundationally very important to yoga and Buddhism, and are critical to the path of moksha and nirvana. Yoga and Buddhism recognize that an unsettled or clouded mind gives us a distorted view of reality. Mindfulness and meditation emphasize tuning into the mind while observing what rises. Think of both as an investigation into who we are as we eliminate the disturbances and chaos of our thoughts. The mind changes from moment to moment. Mindfulness and meditation both emphasize contemplation breaking habitual patterns, and eliminating avidya or ignorance. We have the ability to train our minds to slow down and enter a state of calm and clarity. Focusing upon the now is hugely transformative and develops an ability to manifest what is important to us. Are you ready for another piece of info that might alter your perceptions about Buddhism and yoga to a mind-blowing degree? The first use of the word hatha which has been westernized to be pronounced as hatha as a reference to yoga, is in a text dating to the 8th century CE, meaning the 700s of the common era. Not so mind-blowing until you learn that it was a Buddhist text. (laughs) Well, let's turn our attention to the difference between moksha and nirvana. Moksha, as you will recall, is Vedic. Moksha is a state of release and it signifies an end to suffering and complete absorption. The cycle of birth, death, and rebirth comes to an end. Scholars disagree on the way they define nirvana. The word means extinction or quenching. In nirvana, we have extinguished suffering in the forms of ignorance, hatred, and desire, and brought an end to the cycle of rebirth, and have become enlightened beings. Everyone can achieve nirvana. Interestingly, the Buddha never defined nirvana, even when questioned by one of his followers. Instead, he reminded the follower that his focus should be upon the journey rather than wasting his time on the end game. There is a wonderful parable told by the Buddha about a poisoned arrow. In it, there is a man who has an arrow protruding from his body and he is near death. Before allowing his family to seek the help of a surgeon and the removal of the poisoned arrow, The man insists upon learning the name of the archer, the age of the archer, the archer's occupation, the name of the parents of the archer, etc., 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 and the reason that he was shot in the first place, along with a host of other questions. While waiting for these answers, the man would surely die. The Buddha teaches that speculation is pointless. If we are mindful and are firmly resolved to bring an end to suffering and to follow the Four Noble Truths, we will end the karmic cycle and reach nirvana. The point is, why would we want to waste precious time trying to define nirvana, which is, you guessed it, a form of attachment? The thoughts and questions of the old man with the poisoned arrow in his body did not alleviate his suffering. He had the tools to end suffering, the wisdom of a doctor, and a treatment. But his questions only created more suffering. At the age of 80, and having eaten some spoiled food, the Buddha died in northern India while lying on his side under a grove of trees. As I stated at the beginning of this podcast, Buddhism and yoga are sister traditions. I've only highlighted a few of the overlaps that can be traced to the Vedas. The commonalities of Buddhism and yoga are extensive, with many, many shared terms beyond what I've mentioned today. The difference between the two aren't always obvious. Philosophy is ever-evolving and shifting, particularly as new manuscripts are discovered. What is certain is that both yoga and Buddhism provide tremendous tools for us to lead a life that is filled with compassion while moving away from ignorance to knowledge and ultimately our awakening. I'll leave you with one final thought. One very recognizable symbol that is associated with Buddhism and yoga is the lotus flower. In yoga, perhaps you are familiar with Padmasana, which is lotus posture. The seeds of a lotus flower begin to grow in very muddy water, far removed from the warmth of the sun. Eventually, the lotus arises out of the mud into a most beautiful and perfectly formed flower. For all of humanity, our journey that is on a shared path is represented in the lotus. Rooted in ignorance, disease, and suffering, we too can rise out of the murky depths, reaching upwards towards liberation and enlightenment. I hope today's Green Tree Yoga podcast inspires you to learn more about the intersection of Buddhism and yoga, which is wildly fascinating. If we want to understand either on a deeper philosophical or spiritual level A greater study is most certainly needed in the emerging field of yoga studies. Remember, the history of Buddhism and yoga is vast. A one-hour yoga podcast does very little justice, but hopefully the next time you see a lotus flower or symbol, you'll appreciate the intersection of Buddhism and yoga. Thank you for joining me. I'm Brenda Siepley of Green Tree Yoga of PA. I welcome your comments and I'm always interested in ideas for future podcasts to explore all things yoga. Please feel free to send an email to greentreyogafpa at gmail.com or check out green-tree-yoga.com or the Green Tree Yoga Facebook and Instagram pages. Be safe and well, my friends.